services today. We pray that the Lord will meet with us as we gather to worship him. And we're going to begin the public worship of God by singing to his praise in Psalm 95. It's page 357 in the Blue Psalm books. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Come, let us everyone a joyful noise make to the rock of our salvation. Let us before his presence come with praise and thankful voice. Let us sing psalms to him with grace and make a joyful noise. For God, a great God and great King, above all gods he is. Depths of the earth are in his hand, the strength of hills is his. To whom the spacious sea belongs, for he the same did make. The dry land also from his hands its form at first did take. O come and let us worship him, let us bow down with all. And on our knees before the Lord, our Maker, let us fall. Let us sing then verses 1 to 6, five stanzas of Psalm 95, to God's praise. O come, let us sing to the Lord, come let us every one.
Well, let us now call upon the name of God in prayer. <clears throat> Gracious and ever-blessed God, as we gather together in thy presence on this Lord's Day and Unar experience, it is our great privilege to answer the call of the psalmist who says to us, O come and let us worship him, let us bow down with all, and on our knees before the Lord our Maker let us fall. And as we seek, Lord, to bow the knees of our own souls, to come with reverence and with godly fear before a God who is high and lifted up, one who is majestic, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, help us to do so with solemnity, help us to do so with awe, and help us to do so also with, with gladness and with joy, knowing that it is our great privilege not merely to gather before one who is our creator, who made land and sea, who made heaven and earth, but that we gather to worship one who is the father of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and the father of all of those who believe and trust in him. We seek then, Lord, to worship and we pray that all that we do today would be acceptable in thy sight. Remind us, Lord, that we gather in the first place today not to receive, but to give, to offer the sacrifices of our own lips, uh, to give praise and honour to the word, the one who is worthy of all of our praise and all of our honour. Help us then to do so, to give of ourselves, to give of our hearts, to give of our lives. And as we come under thy word and as we study it, as we meditate upon it, I grant that we might be conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, through that meditation, that the word might be a delight to us, that we might learn not to stand over it as judges, but to sit under it in humility. We are so often comforted by the word, by its exceeding great and precious promises. There are other times, Lord, when we are challenged by it, when it shows us our sin and our shortcoming. And we are mindful that both of these things, the challenges and the comforts, uh, the rebukes and the encouragements are needful for us as we seek to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. But as we seek to live out the Christian life uh, in our own daily experience, I give us to be mindful that it is in nothing that we do or that we are that we are saved, but rather by the grace of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, he who was rich, and yet for our sakes he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. Lord, we are sinners, and we come short of thy glory. We have trodden the law of God under our feet, and we are due the wrath and the curse of God. And yet it is a great wonder to us that in grace and in mercy that a gospel is preached to us, that a Holy Spirit is given to us to work faith and to work repentance, and that Jesus Christ is offered to us freely in the gospel, that we might receive him, and that we might embrace him as ours. Help us to do so more and more, today and every day, uh, to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, to lean not unto our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge him, that he might direct our paths. We pray for those who are today in need, 
those who are laid aside by sicknesses, those unable to be with us, draw near to them where they are. We pray for those also in private distress with their own troubles and anxieties, with their own fears and their own unfulfilled desires. We pray that where these things are according to the will of God, that strength and that comfort might be given. Lord, we are mindful of how feeble we are, how weak we are, and yet thy word tells us that uh, thy grace is sufficient and that thy strength is made perfect in our weakness. Help us then uh, to look to the one who is able to do for us, exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And bless us together as we continue to worship then. Remember this congregation of thy people. Do them good, we pray. Uh, meet with them at the point of their own needs. Be with the leadership of the congregation, all in office. Be with their members and those who adhere to the congregation too. Bless the covenant children, that they might grow up to be pillars in the house of the Lord. That they might grow up to love the Lord Jesus and to serve him in whatever sphere they find themselves placed in. We pray thy blessing upon the church uh, nationwide and indeed worldwide. Not merely the free church, but every denomination which seeks to preach Christ and him crucified. And which seeks to promote holiness as the way of life uh, that is suited to the believer and that is commanded uh, for the believer. We pray for our nation too. Bless our king and our royal family, our prime minister and our first minister, and all who uh, serve us in Westminster and Holyrood and in our local councils across the land. Grant wisdom to them. Grant grace to them. Turn us again, Lord, as a nation, that we might seek the Lord, that we might learn to fear the Lord. Revive the church and give us again the spirit of prayer and supplications. Grant to us the spirit of repentance. And uh, we pray for uh, those who are lost, those who are yet dead in their trespasses and sins throughout our churches, but also our families and our communities and our nation as a whole. We pray for a day of power, that the Lord would revive his work in the midst of the years and in wrath remember mercy. Do us good then, we pray, and continue with us as we seek to worship and forgive us graciously for sin, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, I've been asked to say just a quick word to the children. Uh, boys and girls, I came over with my own family to what we call the mainland um, on Friday. We came over on the ferry, and we've been in Inverness since then. Now, I couldn't tell you where my ticket for the ferry is just now. It might have ended up in a bin. It might still be in the car. It might be in a pocket. I don't know where it is. And if you were to say to me, well, show me your ticket, I probably wouldn't be able to show you the ticket at all. But just because I don't have the ticket doesn't mean that I didn't get across to Ullapool. It doesn't mean that I'm not in Inverness. I don't need to show you the ticket to prove to you that I came over the ferry and that I'm here. The proof isn't in the ticket or the time that I traveled on the day or the day that I went on. The proof is in the fact that I am where I am now, that I am in a different place. And, you know, there's a bit of a lesson in that for us when we think about our own conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ, when we think about whether we're Christians or not. 
Because we read through the Bible and we read about people like the Apostle Paul who was Saul of Tarsus and he was on the way to Damascus to persecute the church and that very day he was converted. And he could always look back on that day and say, well that's the day when I became a Christian. And you maybe know about people like that and, and they lived a very different kind of life and all of a sudden a change came upon them and they were converted and some of us are like that. And then they became Christians. And they can say, that is the day. That is the time. But you know what? And if you've grown up in the church, and if you've grown up in a Christian home, it's really important that you understand this. Most people don't know what day they became a Christian. Most people who've grown up in churches can't tell you what time they became a Christian. They don't have the ticket, as it were, which tells you the day and the time. But that doesn't mean that they're not Christians. That doesn't mean that a change hasn't come into their lives. That doesn't mean that they aren't devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ just as much, if not more, than any other Christian who can tell you the day and the time. And the important thing, boys and girls, isn't that you've got the ticket and you can say, well, this is the day. The important thing is that, just as I can say to you today, I'm not in the Isle of Lewis, I'm in Inverness, I'm in the Highlands, so it is that you can say, well, I'm not living in the world, and I'm not living for the world, but I am living for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm seeking to give my life to him, and if that's what you want today, and if that's your desire today, then I have no doubt that you have made the journey already, and that you are a Christian, and that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Lord will bless these thoughts to you. We're going to continue to sing to God's praise in Psalm 16, this time in the Sing Psalms version of the psalm. Uh, Page 17, we're reading from verse 7. I'll praise the Lord my God, whose counsel guides my choice. And even in the night my heart recalls instruction's voice. Before me constantly I set the Lord alone. Because he is at my right hand, I'll not be overthrown. Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue with joy will sing. My body too will rest secure and hope unwavering. For you will not allow my soul in death to stay, nor will you leave your Holy One to see the tombs decay. You have made known to me the path of life divine. Bliss shall I know at your right hand, joy from your face will shine. And you'll remember that this is a psalm the New Testament tells us is speaking directly about the Lord Jesus himself, about his own faith, his own experience, his own death, and his own resurrection and ascension to glory. But in that it is fulfilled in him, it is also it also will be fulfilled in all who trust in him as well. So we'll sing Psalm sixteen verses seven to eleven to God's praise. I'll praise the Lord my God, whose counsel guides my choice.
Well, let us now turn to read God's Word as we find it in the Scriptures of the New Testament and the Gospel according to Mark and chapter 14. Gospel according to Mark and chapter 14. We're reading from the beginning of this chapter down to the end of the verse marked 25. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than three hundred denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, said I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so on. Amen. The Lord will bless his own word to us, and to his name be all the praise and all the glory. Well, we're going to sing again this time in Psalm 23, 
page 229, Psalm 23. Again, when we, we sing this psalm often, we often apply it to ourselves and to our own situation, our own experience. It's helpful, though, as well, to remember that it is a psalm which our Lord would have sung himself. And it's a psalm which speaks very powerfully into his own experience. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me by the quiet, wa- the quiet waters by. My soul he doth restore again. And me to walk doth make within the paths of righteousness, even for his own name's sake. Yea, though I walk in death's dark veil, yet will I fear none ill. For thou art with me on thy rod, and staff me comfort still. My table thou hast furnished in presence of my foes. My head thou dost with oil anoint, and my cup overflows. Goodness and mercy all my life shall surely follow me. And in God's house forevermore my dwelling place shall be. The whole of Psalm 23 then singing to God's praise. The Lord's my shepherd I'll not want. He makes me down to lie.
Well now with a view to God's blessing, if you turn back with me to the portion of scripture which we read in the gospel according to Mark and chapter 14. We hope to look at verses 3 to 9, but we can take our text from the beginning of verse 8. Mark 14, verse 8. She has done what she could. What we have in these verses is an account of the anointing of our Lord Jesus. And as you read through the Gospels, you'll find that there are four accounts of this of anointings of the Lord Jesus. Um, chronologically, the first one is in Luke chapter 7. And it's quite clear when you study that account, both in terms of its chronology and in terms of what happens and, and who does it, that it's a different anointing account. And then you have a second anointing, which we read of here, towards the end of Jesus' life, in his last days. And Mark, Matthew, and John all record that anointing for us. Mark in our chapter here, chapter 14, John in chapter 12, and Matthew in chapter 26 of his gospel. And they're recording the same event. And so, as we consider what happens here... When Jesus is anointed at Bethany, we'll maybe draw from some of what Matthew says, but particularly from what John says, who gives us extra details. One detail that John does give us is that this happened probably on the Saturday before Jesus' crucifixion. And that's important because it tells us that particularly Matthew's account isn't uh, perhaps entirely chronological, Um, because if it happened on the Saturday, then it probably happened before, say in in Mark 13, you have the Olivet Discourse, Matthew uh, 24 and 25, is it? You You have that discourse as well. That probably happened a wee bit later on in the week. But John tells us that what happens here, this anointing happened six days before the Passover. And if you read Matthew and Mark, although it places it in another place and and they don't aim to be chronological all of the time, they do both tell us that Jesus was in Bethany on that Saturday. So for example, here in the Gospel according to Mark in chapter 11, we read, and this is after the the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that he then, he entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, and then he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So this happened on probably the Saturday before Jesus' crucifixion. Now, it happened at a supper. It seems that the supper was held for Jesus himself. Perhaps it was um, maybe a Thanksgiving supper after the, the, resurrec- the, the resurrection of Lazarus. It's difficult to be exactly sure, but it seems to have been held in the honor of Jesus. And it was held in the house of a man called Simon the leper. We don't know really anything about this Simon the leper, apart from that he probably used to be a leper. He was most likely a healed leper. Because if he was still a leper, then they would have been breaking all of the Mosaic laws and having dinner in his house. So this is a man who had been healed, perhaps healed by Jesus, we don't know. There are some who suggest that Simon the leper was the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We've really got no evidence 
for that. It is interesting, however, that it is Martha who seems to be taking control of the kitchen and the serving, as was Martha's normal place. She was a woman who loved to work, a woman who loved to be serving, sometimes even, as we see in Luke chapter 10, is it to her detriment. But here she is serving the table, and Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead, he is sitting at the table. All of that is told us in John chapter 12. Only John tells us, it's interesting that that Matthew and Mark don't actually name the woman who did this. She was just a woman. But John tells us that the woman was Mary of Bethany. He doesn't tell us that in the account that he has in John chapter 12, but actually at the beginning of John chapter 11, where he's going to tell us about the resurrection of of Lazarus. We read there in in verse 2 that it was Mary... Well, it's, no, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So this happened in the house of Simon the leper. Martha was serving, Lazarus was at the table, and Mary is the woman who anointed Jesus. Now the first thing that I want us to consider just really briefly is, is what did she do? What did she do? We read in verse 3 what she did. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flax of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So she took this very expensive alabaster box. Now, alabaster alabaster box, we we know it as. That's how it's come down to us. Through us, to us through other translations. Uh, here I think it, it's translated as a flask, which is probably just basically what it was. A sort of boxy type thing which would have had a long kind of spout on it for, for pouring. Alabaster is basically a, it's a form of gypsum. Um, it's like a, a marble, but a softer marble. So it was easier to, um, to, to engrave things in it, to, to make it ornate. And, and the chances were that, that this box, which was expensive in itself, was probably carved. It was an ornate box. It was an expensive box. If, if any of you know about perfumes, and, and it's basically perfume that it contained, um, sometimes what you're paying for isn't the perfume itself. What you're paying for is the box. If you look into some of the most expensive perfumes in the world, one of the reasons that they're expensive isn't because of the, the perfume that they contain, although that's expensive enough as it is. It's because of the gold and the diamonds and so on and the, and the gems and, and the jewels that are on the box. Well, so it was here. It wasn't just expensive ointment. It was an expensive box. But the box contained a pound of um, what's called here the ointment of pure nard, very costly. A pound was a, a Roman pound, about 12 ounces, which is, what, 350 grams or so. So, so it was a pretty heavy box, a lot of oil, and that's what it contained, fragrant oil. It's interesting that I didn't notice till now that the ESV calls it anointment as well. The authorised version calls it anointment. And not in any way saying that the, the translation is wrong, but most commentators will say that we think of anointment as a kind of hard-ish thing that you can rub in. But this 
This was clearly poured on. We wouldn't really think of anointment being something that was easy to pour. When I say hard, I just mean kind of soft and, and gooey. This seems to be more like a, an oil, which she literally could pour upon the head of Jesus. It's called the oil of pure nard, the oil of spike nard, as it is in some of the, the translations. The ESV translates it here as pure, pure nard because that word spike is a... Uh, it is an adjective, and it probably means something like pure. Now, nard itself was basically an essential oil, which came from the honeysuckle family, and it, it was imported. It was imported from the, the Himalayan countries, countries like Nepal. Probably from this probably came from India. So even in that, it was imported. Not only that, it was an expensive box, but that it was a, an expensive, quite a rare oil that was report, important in from, from India, it's clear that it was, it was expensive. It, it was important in, usually, not so you could dab a wee bit on you if you're going out to dinner, but rather for embalming the dead. And that's why people were willing to pay so much for it. Because, well, when somebody dies who, who you care for, you, you're not scrimping, are you? You're willing to... Um, spend what needs to be spent, sometimes even to go a little bit over the top to show the way in which you honor them, the way in which you love them. And so people were willing to spend really vast amounts of money on this kind of thing to embalm the dead. It was also very fragrant. John very, uh, he tells us in a way that it's sort of picturesque and moves your senses that the whole house, the whole house was filled with the odor when she did this, the whole house was filled with the odor of, of, of the, of the spikenard. So that you, you, if you had walked into that house that day, you would have been hit by it. A wee bit like walking into the, the beauty section of Marks and Spencer or John Lewis or, or whatever it might be. It's, it's overwhelming. It's, overpower, uh, it's, 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 it's powerful. And that's the way that it would have been. Such was the potency of it. And of course, all of this tells us that it was very, very costly, as it's said here, very precious. Judas tells us, well, John tells us it was Judas, but that this could have been sold and sold for 300 denarii. Denarii was a, a day's wage for a laborer. Um, 300 denarii was basically a year's wage. So you're talking about, in our money, about £20,000. That's probably what this would have cost Mary of Bethany. About £20,000, and she poured it all out. And again, you think to yourself, well, £20,000 for a bottle of, or a box of perfume? But again, you do your research, and you find that, well, I think the most expensive perfume in the world today is around £500,000 for an ounce. And a bot bottle of perfume has, what, four? Six ounces, something like that. So you can still get very expensive perfume, and you can get very expensive perfume in these days as well. But Mary takes this box, and she takes the whole box, and she breaks it. She probably snaps off the spout, and she breaks it over the head of Jesus. And John tells us then that, that she, it clearly dripped down, not just his head, not just down his shoulders, but down to his very feet. And she used her hair to, to wipe his feet with that ointment. That is, that is what Mary did. But what I want us to consider is how it was seen, how it was viewed by others. And it's interesting that it didn't 
go down well with everyone. Firstly, I want us to see the disciples' indignation. We read here in verses 4 to 5 that after she had done this, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, but very, very displeased, which is basically what that word means, angry. Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her, which, again, I, I... This isn't the translation that that we use, so I didn't look into that word. But normally that word is translated, they murmured against her. They spoke against her. And they were clearly very upset with her. It's interesting that this wasn't an act on the part of the disciples. They were actually genuinely troubled, genuinely upset, genuinely angry by what they saw as a, a waste, basically. You see, like Jesus... The disciples knew something of poverty. They knew something of need. They'd left their nets behind them. They'd left their their tax booths. Um, They were dependent upon charity, basically. And you see that in the ministry of Jesus. How can you have 13 men going about Galilee, going down around Judea, not working and yet surviving? Well, the care of others. The charity of other people. We know that some wealthy women particularly um, basically paid their way or, or certainly part of their way. And yet here you've got these disciples who, and it's, off, it's, it's important for us to try to, um, it's easy just to, to scold or to murmur against the disciples. But let's try and see it from their perspective. Uh, they were living on very little and you've got all of this money as they see it. You've got all of this money and it's being poured out in a moment. In a moment. And for what? What could we have done with this money? What could we have done for ourselves? What could we have done for others? You see, they knew that Jesus didn't covet luxury for himself. He didn't covet fine food, fine clothes. Hey, let's be honest. Many of the things that sometimes we find ourselves coveting. Jesus didn't covet these things. He wasn't fussed about these things. He wasn't fussed about fine perfumes as we might be. And the disciples knew that. And so they thought, well, surely Jesus isn't going to approve of this, of this senseless waste, this senseless extravagance. And so they murmur against Mary. See, she's supposed to be a follower of Jesus. She's supposed to be one of us. Look how unwise she is. Look how, they might have even said, how showy she is. How dramatic she is. Trying to be super religious, trying to be better than the rest of us. But how foolish she's been. This money could have been better spent. And you know, friends, what that is, is the wisdom of the world, isn't it? The wisdom of the world doesn't understand lavish acts of love towards Jesus Christ. The wisdom of the world doesn't understand why, Jesus, why, why Mary would do this, why she would spend so much money Uh, so quickly when they could have been spent in other ways and the wisdom of the world if you're a Christian won't understand you either if you're a worldly Christian it it will understand you but if you're a Christian who tries to be different if you're a Christian who tries to live as a Christian and be a real Christian and not just a Christian in name then the world won't understand you and the world will criticize you the wisdom of the world doesn't understand why you would devote so much of your time 
to Christ. So much of yourself, so much of your assets. The wisdom of the world doesn't understand why you're here this morning when they're having a lazy Sunday, when they're maybe, well, probably not still in bed, but not long up, when they're maybe going to a cafe for their Sunday lunch, going to meet up with a few friends, have a quiet day, and then they'll be, in their own view, bodily refreshed for tomorrow. They don't understand why you're here just now. They won't understand particularly why you would go twice on the Lord's Day. They don't understand why perhaps if you're coming in the door you put money, some of your money into the thing. Or as most of you probably do now, why you've got a a standing order to the church. Why would you give 10% of your money to the church when you can use it for other things? Why would you give more than that? Why would you give anything when you can put it into a fund for your, for your kids or when you can use it for an extension in a few years or for a car? The world doesn't understand that. It doesn't understand why you would seek to raise your children or why you would bring grandchildren to the house of God every Lord's Day, why you would bring them to Sabbath school, why you would teach them to pray, to read the Word, to live different lives, to live holy lives, why you would keep them from things on the Lord's Day, why you wouldn't just send them to that birthday party or send them to that football club. Why are you depriving them? The world doesn't understand that. The world doesn't understand why you would hinder yourself in your career because you want to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't understand why you won't work on a Sunday. Doesn't understand why you won't just go with the flow and say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done. The world doesn't understand that because it has no concept really of God as he is in the scriptures. No concept really of eternity. No concept of holiness. No concept of faithfulness. But of course the world isn't stupid. It can dress up its hostility. And hostility it is. Better to give your your time, your money to, to something else. To another cause. To the poor. Better spend more time with your children on a Sunday. Uh, better doing other things with them. Better giving your money to charity. Your efforts to charity. To, to poor people. Better giving your money to the starving in Africa or in Asia, or or wherever they might be, those in war-torn countries, and giving your money to the church? Surely it is. Surely you can't say that it's it's better to to give your money to the church than it is to give it to the starving. Better to give it to Oxfam, or whoever it might be. What do you think is more important? Feeding the starving in Africa, or having a church of Christ with the gospel being preached? It's a very difficult question, isn't it? And and it seems non-PC to say, well, actually the most important thing of all is to give what we have and what we are to Christ and to his cause, to missionaries in Africa. Of course, there's a sense in which it's it's a a non-question because when we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength, we love our neighbor as ourselves. And if anybody isn't moved with compassion by the, the starving in Africa or whatever they might be or those who are displaced in war toward countries. So there's a problem there. And there isn't just a, a kind of a mental problem, there's a spiritual problem. And yet, what is more important? To serve Christ or to serve the poor? Well, really, if we had to, to say it, it's surely this, to serve Christ. It's to give what we have, all that we are, to Christ and through that, to serve others, certainly. But that's what the world will do. 
It will make a distinction which in many ways shouldn't be there. But it will do that. It will do anything to take your attention away from Christ and from his cause. That which doesn't just restore the body as food does, but that which restores the soul. And so, friends, here is a good work for Jesus Christ. And not only would the world condemn it today, but the church condemned it. The disciples, the men who who would come to write many of the books of our New Testament, they condemned it. They condemned her. Why? Well, because the wisdom of the world was in the church as well, wasn't it? And whatever is in the world will be here, in our midst. Whoever the world thinks, well, we will think as well. And that's what we so have to guard against. That's what we so have to guard against as a church, that we're not thinking as the world thinks. That our standards aren't the standards of the world. Because, friends, the standards of the world will largely be godless. Now, it is certainly true that that the leaven of the gospel will spread throughout a society. But, But the leaven of the gospel is largely leaving your society. And more and more its standards will be godless. And we have to expect that. So how careful we have to be when we take on the wisdom of the world, when we take it on board, when we seek to speak like it, when we seek to further its causes, when we speak to do, seek to do what it calls us to do. Because more and more we will find ourselves out of sync, not only with people like Mary of Bethany, who did a good work for Jesus, but out of sync with the Lord himself. What led these good people astray? And good people can be led astray. You can be led astray and I can be led astray. Not just in minor things, but in important things. What led them astray? Well, actually John tells us that it was Judas Iscariot who who sowed the seed of discontent. We read here in John chapter 12. In, In Mark's account it just says among the disciples. But John tells us that Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples he was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Well, who would the true church of Christ listen to? Godly Mary or godless Judas? One who was giving 20,000 pounds of her assets, probably all that she had and that she'd saved up for probably for three years and she gives it all to Jesus. Will we listen to her or will we listen to the one who has the money bag and who has his hand in the money bag for himself? One seems to be a wee bit, how do you put it? Judas seems plausible. He's known amongst the disciples. He's always been there. He's trustworthy apparently. The other is a wee bit suspicious. She's doing things that are a wee bit erratic, devoting a wee bit too much of herself, showing up the others. Who do you trust? Mary or Judas? Well, the church trusted Judas Iscariot, who would betray Jesus Christ. It takes one person, one trustworthy person, to lead a great amount of people astray. How careful we have to be that we're not that person ourselves. And how careful we have to be that we're not the people who are led astray. So that is the first thing, the disciples' indignation. In the time that we have left, Jesus' vindication. Um, Verse 6, Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? 
She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Leave it alone. You know, boys and girls, sometimes if you're out, maybe playing football or playing at school in the, in the play park, and you see somebody who's being kind of bullied, somebody mistreated, and uh, by, by bigger kids or by kids who aren't as nice, and if you're brave enough, or if somebody is brave enough, they'll go up and they'll say, leave him alone, or leave her alone, because they, they want to help that person. Uh, they want to support that person. They don't want bad things to happen to that person or bad things to be said about that person. Well, that's essentially what Jesus is doing here. He's standing up for somebody who is being mistreated. He's saying, leave her alone because she has done a beautiful thing to me, a good thing, a beautiful thing. Um, You see, there are two things that Jesus knows or notices and that we can notice in what Mary does. Two things that make what she did not a bad thing, not a waste, but a good thing. The first thing is, is her understanding, that she understood. She understood what few people did. She understood what the disciples didn't understand. She understood what better educated people than her didn't understand. And what she understood was this, what Jesus went on to say, um, you will not always have me, The poor you have with you always, but me you have not with you always. She understood that. In other words, she understood that Jesus was going to die. If she did this for his burial, then she understood that Jesus was soon to be buried. That he was on his way to Jerusalem. Why? Well, to give his life as a ransom for many. That he was the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And if he is a lamb, what did lambs do? What did lambs do at Passover time when they were killed? They were sacrificed. Their blood was shed. They were consumed with fire. She understood this about Jesus. And it's remarkable that she did for that very reason, that that others did not. But she also knew, as everybody knew then, that after somebody died, what happened? Well, very quickly, they would be embalmed. And then they would be buried. Very quickly, a lot quicker than we do ourselves. Now, Jesus was embalmed, wasn't he? Uh, When Joseph of Arimathea got his body back, Nicodemus came with a a vast amount of of spices and so on. The the amount that you would use to embalm a king, and he embalmed Jesus with these spices. So you would be embalmed and you would be buried. But here's the thing. Mary didn't know, I don't think that she could know, about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and what they were going to do. But what she did know was this, that when Jesus went to Jerusalem, if she'd been listening to him at all, she knew that he wasn't going to die a natural death. He wasn't going to die in a deathbed with all of his family about him. He was going to die as a criminal. He was going to be crucified as a malefactor. That's what she knew. And when people were crucified, how do you think they were buried? Do you think there was great pomp and ceremony? Do you think that the the Roman soldiers went to a great deal of effort to embalm them and to to wrap their bodies and to put them in a lovely tomb? Not at all. What did they do? Well, they made shallow graves. I think I read somewhere, it's a long time ago, that sometimes these graves were little 
more than two feet deep. And they just dumped them in there. Sometimes it was a common grave if there were a few of them. So so shallow that, that even the the wild dogs would sometimes get in and begin to interfere. Um, but she knew this, that this is how he was going to die. But perhaps she had heard him as she sat at his feet talk about Isaiah 53, where we read that he would make his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. He had prophesied himself. It's interesting the the, the translation that, that we have or, or that we're used to. He made his grave with the, with the wicked. The Gallic translation has it, and maybe some of the English ones do as well, that his, his grave was appointed with the wicked. That's the way that it was supposed to be. That's the way that they expected it to be. He would have the kind of grave that a wicked person would be. But what does Isaiah go on to say? And with the rich in his death. Now, if we take that translation that his grave was appointed with the wicked, this is the way that it should have been because he died as a criminal how then can he make his grave with the rich in his death? Well simply with New Testament life because of the the interference as it were of Joseph of Arimathea this is the way it should have been, this is the way that the other two thieves on the cross were, they, were died, they died in the wicked's grave, in the shallow grave but Joseph of Arimathea he interfered so although Jesus Although he should have had his grave with the wicked in the shallow grave, he was actually buried as a king. Why does any of this matter? Well, because in view of the fact that she couldn't really have known about Joseph of Arimathea, I suppose she could if she'd been told and that explanation of Isaiah 53, but all she knew was that he was going to die as a criminal and that he wouldn't be embalmed and that... He had to be embalmed before he was buried. He had to be anointed because he was the Christ, which means the anointed one. And so what does she do? In view of his burial, as we have it here, in view of his burial, she embalms him now. Because she doesn't want her saviour and his body to go to the grave without care, without love, without embalming. She understood then that Christ was going to die that he was going to die for her. I think she also understood that he was going to rise again. That's slightly more difficult to prove. But if Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die, do you not think that Martha told Mary that Jesus was the resurrection and the life? And if, Jesus, if Mary sat at Jesus' feet and heard him say that he was going to die, that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to die, that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to rise again, do you think that she heard all of it, but didn't hear the part about rising again? I think that she did. And it's very interesting that on the resurrection morning, when the, the woman went to embalm Jesus, that Mary wasn't there. Why was she not there? Because I don't think that she expected Jesus to be there. She understood what few others did. And it's no surprise, friends, that it was her who sat at the feet of Jesus who understood all of this. Her who actually listened, who wasn't busying herself, careful and troubled concerning many things when there was but one thing needful. She sat at the feet of Jesus. She, she knew what it was to be hearing his words. What an example to us. This woman understood what few, so few people, even amongst the disciples, understood. You know, you can understand things.
deep things, the wisdom of God, the truth of God. You can understand things that the world outside of here does not understand, that much of the church which isn't taught from Scripture doesn't understand simply by being in the Word, simply by being in church and sitting under a Bible-based ministry. So there's understanding. that The second thing that was good or beautiful in what Mary did was simply her love. Um, you always have the poor with you. And whatever you want, whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Many take what Jesus says here as a warrant to care for the poor. Um, as he often cared for the poor. And as Mary often cared for the poor. Let's not say that Mary was careless concerning the poor. And I think that this is a warrant. He's saying, the poor you always have, me you will not always have. In other words, don't get at her for, for doing what she did for me now, because there will be plenty of time to care for the poor. And so we ought to care for the poor. And it is a warrant for us. I think that it is. Um, but she knew that there would be opportunities to serve the poor in the future. It's a It's a mask of the early church that they were known for that, for caring for the poor, for caring for the widow, for caring for the orphan. And that was one of the things, friends, that that attracted people to the Christian faith. Not that they were had good slogans, not that they had fancy services with modern music, not that they were that they knew the right things to say or the right things to do, not that they were intentionally missional or whatever you want to call it, but that they lived the Christian life in a way that was sacrificial and in a way that showed the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what attracted people then. That's what will attract people today, friends. She knew that there would be opportunities, but opportunities to honor the King of Kings who was about to die on Calvary's cross. Opportunities to express her love for her Savior. He who, though he knew no sin, was made sin for her, that she might be made the righteousness of God in him. Opportunities to express her love to him were quickly coming to an end. And the love of Christ so constrained her that she takes this alabaster box full of costly ointment, costly oil, the costliest thing she had in her home. And she doesn't just pour a wee bit of it on the head of Jesus. She breaks the box. And she pours it all out on him. How could she hold back anything for the one that she loved, her Savior, who had gone to, was going to prepare a place for her in heaven? Jesus, friends, didn't covet such indulgence. I don't think that he did. But he recognized the heart from which it came. He recognized love for himself as he recognizes that today. He recognized that. He could smell the fragrance not only of the oil which was filling the house, but of the ointment. And you know, when we love the Lord Jesus Christ and show that love in sacrificial ways, our lives, as the Apostle says, will be a fragrance. A fragrance. People will smell Christ from you. Um, he goes on to say it's a fragrance of life unto life for some it will be used to their conversion of death unto death to others it will be used to harden them it's a remarkable thing you know when you see Mary and Judas here it's a remarkable thing that, that Jesus being there 
amongst them, speaking of his death. From one of them it was a fragrance of life unto life. Mary herself who poured out all that she had for him. Judas, on the other hand, when he hears all this talk about death, off he goes and sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. The time is gone, but Mark adds, and it's only Mark who says it, she has done what she could. She did what she could. Um, <coughs> Robert Murray McShane has a sermon on this. If you've got his memoirs and remains, it's just four or five pages. And it's interesting, it begins, as many of these old ministers did, with the doctrine of the text. And he reads out the text, she did what she could, and, and he says, the doctrine is, do what you can. That's simple. Do what you can. She took what she had. She didn't take any more than she had. Jesus didn't expect any more than she had. Any more than what her capability was. Just as you look at other people around you and they seem so active and and they've got money to give and they've they've got gifts and they've got talents and they can do so much for the Lord and you think to yourself, well, I can't do any of that. And you can get down because of that. Jesus doesn't want you to do any of that. He doesn't expect you to do any of that. But he does expect you to do what you can And to use what you have. He doesn't expect anything else. But what you have. But that's not to say that Mary did little. Actually Mary did a lot didn't she? She did a lot. Her love was extravagant. She devoted all that she had to the Lord. Because she loved him. Everything that she had. You know, I could say to you today, you you need to do more for the Lord. If the Lord has died for you, then you need to do more. You need to make sure that you don't miss services. You need to make sure that you're reading more in the Word. You need to make sure that you're doing more in prayer. That you're giving more to the church. That you're speaking more for Christ. That you're demoting more of yourself to the cause of Christ. That's what you need to do. But the fact is, when we realize what Jesus Christ has done for us, we won't need to be guilt-tripped or goaded into serving the Lord. You know if we serve the Lord because we have to. If we give of ourselves to the Lord because we feel that it's just what we need to do, we don't particularly want to do it. We could think of ways more pleasing to ourselves to spend our money or to spend our time or to spend ourselves, but this is what we have to do. It won't last. It won't last. And not only that, but it won't be pleasing to the Lord either. He's looking for willing hearts. But the fact is that if you love the Lord as Mary loved him, and if that love reaches to the very core of your being, You will want to show your love to him who first loved you. You will do what you can. And Jesus will accept what you can do and what you do. And not only will he accept it, but he will delight in it. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Well, that's illustrated here today, isn't it? In this church 2,000 years on, we're still talking about this woman. We're still talking about what she did. We're still talking about the oil that she poured out. We're still talking about the indignation of the disciples and learning these lessons. We're still talking about what Jesus said about her. How beautiful, how good it was to him. We're still talking about it. It was only a pouring of oil on his head. We're still talking about it. You know... People would say that there are bigger things going on today. We can talk about artists, boys and girls. Some of you might, I don't. But you might know the the people who are 
top of the charts, most listened to on Spotify or whatever it is, and they're all the rage, and everybody's talking about them. Musicians and their music, artists and their paintings or their sculptures, celebrities and everything that they're doing from morning till night, politicians and the laws and their pa- the laws that they're passing, sportsmen, the goals that they're scoring, the races that they're running, the lengths that they're swimming, whatever it might be. These things seem so important. The news will talk about it. People will go on their phones and they'll read all about it. The fact is, all of these things are going to be forgotten. It will be remarkable if they're remembered in 50 years. In a hundred years, there might be a few words written about them in books or some other way of remembering things, but nobody will really be interested. Because people are interested in the here and now, not what happened 50 years ago, not what somebody did a hundred years ago, not really. These things aren't really important. In fact, we could go as far as to say that really they're unimportant. But this kind of thing is remembered. What you do for the Lord is remembered. C.T. Studd had a hymn, a poem, I think it was more a children's song, which said only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Well, Mary did this for Christ and it lasted. And I want to ask you and I want to ask myself, what have you done or what are you doing for Christ? Do you, does your life know anything of extravagance for his cause, for his person? Is your love to him, is it sacrificial? Does it cost you anything? Are you doing what you can? Amen. Let us pray. (coughs) Gracious Lord, help us to be faithful in our Christian lives. Help us to do what we can. Bless thy word to us and forgive us for sin for Christ's sake. Amen. Let us sing in conclusion from Psalm 45, the first, first version of the psalm, reading from verse 8. <clears throat> and again, a psalm which speaks so beautifully of the Lord himself. And the picture is, of course, the king and his marriage to the church of Alos, Mur and Kashia, a smell thy garments had out of the ivory palaces whereby they made thee glad. Among thy women honourable king's daughters were at hand. Upon thy right hand did the queen and gold of offer stand. O daughter, hearken and regard, and do thine ear incline. Likewise forget thy father's house and people that are thine. The daughter there, of course, being a picture of the church preparing for the marriage. Then of the king, King Jesus, desired shall be thy beauty vehemently, Because he is thy Lord, do thou him worship reverently. Psalm 45, first version, verses 8 to 11. To God's praise of Alos, Mur, and Kashia, a smell thy garments had.
Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit